The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber. I am Diana Marzalek, a senior reporter with the Homes Report. I have with me today Phil Nardoni, who is the CEO of Pan Communications in Boston. Welcome. Great. Yes, nice to be here. I'm glad to have you. And um, Phil also is an adjunct professor um, teaching public relations at the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. And so with your dual perspectives as both a, a, a teacher and an employer, anxious to talk about what you're seeing in terms of the training that kids are getting, the next generation of talent, and what you as an agency leader are looking for. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. And, and clearly, it's, um, it's an evolving situation. I've been teaching at the Newhouse School for 18 years now, and the students that are coming out of there today are vastly different than they were 5, 10, 15 years ago. In which way? Um, I think today, students um, in... In my class, anyway, I teach a senior-level class called PR Management that is right before students graduate from the Newhouse School. So I'm getting kids that will be employed by agencies, nonprofits, or corporations uh, come May or June. I think that they're today they're coming in or they're coming out of school with not just the desire to be in public relations as that may, may have been the case 15 years ago. But today, they augment their, their, college, um, their college experience with graphic arts or with video or with a passion for all things digital or content. And what that means for employers is that as they take these students on and in an AAE role, for example, in an agency, they're looking for more than just that media relations track. That was the case previously. So are the kids taking on these extra um, studies because that's what the agencies are demanding? Or is it because they want to pursue a... They, they view public relations with a greater scope? Yeah, or? I, think, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's um, universities like Newhouse know that for their students to have a cutting edge, a leg up, if you will, they need to give them more than just the traditional PR track teaching you about news release writing or all of those kinds of things, but rather augment that degree with some other skills that make you more desirable. And then on the flip side of your question, there's these, the students today are just passionate about all things social or all things content. They're overwhelmed with um, the amount of information that they're consuming. So they, they're looking for more themselves. So it's really from both ends. And what is your sense of what they envision, what they are going to? Do they have a sense of what the public relations business is? I mean, it's such a diverse business, yeah, yeah. but do they know what they're going to? I think that um, hopefully by the time they come out of my class, they know because as a CEO that flies in once a week to teach this three-hour course, I'm giving them in the moment training on what it's like to be in an agency. So whatever my agency is dealing with in client relations, HR, business development and marketing, uh, all the components I share in real time what that's all about. So I think they understand when you dig down below that in the world of client relations, which these people would, um, would be assigned to, they know that 
most of the programs at a place like PAN or a midsize agency out there are looking for both integrated marketing, the true digital components of a, of a program, of a campaign, and media relations. So traditional and new. Yeah, definitely. So they do. They, they know that, Diana. I think they know that that's what they're getting. But here's the, here's the big thing. They're looking for more and more of, of it. They, in other words, they want more integrated. And now what they're asking for is specialized roles, opportunities in an agency or in a corporate department where they can focus in whatever their interest is. Is that realistic, though, when you're, you're, you're yeah. coming out of college and Beautiful. those of us who have been through it, you know, you, you take your first job and you do the grunt work to some degree and yeah. you move on. Is think, what they're asking for feasible? Yeah, I hope that I hope that people out there that are listening to this realize that um, it's unrealistic for an individual who graduates to expect that right away, but they can work towards that. And at a place like PAN, where they're given a dedicated vice president um, to partner with during their career tracking, they're able to chart a course that says, here's what I want more of. But when you graduate and come into a place like PAN, you're not going to be given exclusively one 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 area to specialize in. You can evolve into that as the months and years tick by. So it sounds like it's, it's probably a little give and take on both sides because agencies, you want to cultivate and retain your talent, and yet the talent's coming in with these yeah. visions of where they're going and what they're going to be doing. So I guess it's working together or, or coming to some sort of agreement yeah. maybe on, on how to do that. Yeah, and, you, and you're right on that because we take a lot of pride in creating a culture that helps us to retain our workforce. And, and we can talk more about that as as this moves on. But I can't say if it was specialized role demanding coming coming out of individuals or from Team HR saying, let's do more of this to retain more people. It happened and it's working beautifully in our firm. We have a vice president of our integrated marketing team and she identifies people that have developed a passion and a skill set in the non-traditional media relations things. And she works with our HR team to help navigate um, a plan for them to do more specialized things. Interesting. I, I imagine that one of the challenges on the teaching end, too, is also trying to prepare a workforce or prepare talent for an industry that is always changing, particularly now. So with an industry that could look vastly different in a year, how do you get a, a young person ready to enter that? I mean... Mm. I think that, um, you know, one of the reasons why I've enjoyed teaching at, at the Newhouse School for so long, and many people say it's like a 15-week interview, if you will, because I know these students, Diana, after um, being a part of their life for the whole semester. And clearly, what rises to the top time and time again, are not the individuals that might um, might excel in the true PR or IM aspects, but it's the students that show they are intellectually curious and they have a point of view on whatever the topic is. One of the things that we do in our class every week, one student creates, um, picks a, a topic from one of the newspapers and they they use that as a discussion question to talk about PR practices and principles applied to that article and they have to lead that discussion. 
I don't care if students agree or disagree with their point of view. I just like that these students can read something, consume it, digest it, think it through, do some research, follow up on it, and then stand in front of the class and defend a point of view on it. And so for me, time and time again, that's what rises to the top. Um, I appreciate hearing that because one of the questions I do have is how do you uh, reinforce the importance of that critical thinking yeah. and of that creativity, and yet at the same time, there's an uh, increasing reliance or expectation of people managing technology, data and analytics, um, mm -hmm. AI may be changing their roles, but yet when push comes to shove, PR is requires a brain, requires right. creativity, requires yeah. thought. Yeah. You have to, at whatever level you're in, 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 in our field, public relations, you have to be able to sit and find where the, the nugget is, that story is, find, so you need that brain power, as you're saying, to, to think it through. Today, you know, you mentioned measurement and analytics. Today, there's so much available to professionals to augment the story, to, to strengthen it. And whether it be um, already surveys and data that they've, that's already out there, or creating a survey on their own to support what their client is trying, uh, is espousing. Is there a demand for these kids? Are they getting hired? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. Really? Um, yeah. I, I have a class of 16, um, by, I would say at least 50% already have jobs, which is great. Yes. Yeah. I mean that, but it runs the gamut, nonprofit, um, corporate, couple of them already heard from agencies. Agencies are typically the last ones to make the offers um, to these students because they look at their business in 30 or 60 day cycles to see what the need might be. So we are just extending offers to some of the kids in, in my class, as a matter of fact. Oh, so um, you're, you're training the, your own hire, yeah, hirees? That's wonderful. It is. <laughs> uh, I mean, PAN must have, we have an awful lot of Newhouse grads in all four of the PAN offices. So it's great. That's great. Um, I'm wondering what your your classroom looks like uh, in terms of diversity. It's always it's a, a major issue in the industry. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always the question of, of doing more heavily recruiting off of you know historically black colleges. Yeah. Other options. What is a school like? I love that you're bringing this up. You and I talked about it a, a little bit once before, and um, you know, it's an industry that is very female dominated. My class is no exception. Um, I think out of 16 students, I have three men in the really? class. Yeah. So, you know, it's just the way um, it could be Newhouse, it could be our industry. But when I go to other agencies, I see predominantly females. So it is that. And then that begs the next question on this whole pay structure. And I can tell you as a board member for the PR Council, and as a CEO of a 150-person firm, I, I know for a fact that we pay men and women the same. It's based on the job they're doing, their responsibility, their role. And I, I, even today, there was an actress on Good Morning America talking about um, a fair, a fair pay for women. I think in our industry, I don't see it, Diana. I don't see the, um, the division. What about the ethnic diversity, though? I, I so badly wish there were more. In my class, I have one person of color. Um, I, I typically have some um, Chinese students, but I don't this year for some reason. I'm, I'm not quite sure why. But um, 
so no, I don't think our industry is there yet in terms of um, diversity. Right. What about the other um, sort of cultural, I don't want to say issues or or um, nuances that come into an agency like Pan when you bring this generation of talent in? You bring new talent in. Yeah. There's the existing talent. There's yeah. people who've been in it for decades. What's so one the... thing that we one thing we do to address that is we give every individual um, a shadow that is someone at their level that they can partner with, and we have a really good formal onboarding program. But you need those two things. And then I would guess the third th- I would say the third thing is having a this dedicated VP model that we really think works beautifully because you take an office with a hundred people and immediately go to a VP who has the responsibility for 15 people. So it shrinks it right down so that we know what your needs are, your desires are, and every quarter we're looking at, at your goals and objectives and then reviewing how you did against those goals. But I, I think that there needs to be training in agencies as we're onboarding uh, the, the, new, the new talent, and we need to listen. And maybe we should talk about that, Diana, because I think, you know, employers, CEOs, VPs, HR departments, we're used to speaking to candidates. And now these individuals that are coming out of schools, they have, um, they've worked hard, no doubt about it. And they have some thoughts on their own career. They know what they want. They know what they're looking for. And it's not just the nine to five stuff that they're looking for. They're looking for companies, agencies that give back to the community. So I would say that a philanthropic agency matters in the minds of, of young people today. We have a whole program called Pan Cares, where we, in each market, um, work with homeless youths and do activities. And we do pro bono work in exchange for them. And do you see the young talent? Oh, my God. They all all show up. They love it. And that's what they talk to their friends about. Really? So, I mean, I know there's a lot of studies out there about why people stay, why people leave agencies or companies. And certainly you have to pay them, right? You have to be competitive. And we are. There's enough benchmark data out there to make sure that we're paying both the student just graduating from college all the way up to an SVP. Um, We're paying them adequately and um, in many cases slightly above the industry average. But there's other things that keep them there and things like pan cares, um, pan, you know, just all the culture things that we do really help to retain talent today. Do you have any issues, though, with that sort of um, generational gap, um, what the young talent is looking for and expecting versus people who have been in the business for a while and the way they do their jobs. Yeah, I think um, I think it's different markets. Um, it's more apparent. I think in San Francisco, anyone will tell you that it's a really tough talent market, one, to find the individual, and two, to keep the individual. Um, I think that agencies and, and PR departments there in particular, an individual has the chance to go to a startup where they get maybe equity, or they go to another agency that's paying them, you know, $10,000 more or 15 or whatever it might be. So that in itself tantalizes the, the individual, you know, it gets them to take a second look. The hope is that what they're doing in terms of the work for the clients that they're, they've got, the friends that they've made, 
in the agency form a whole community for them, and it keeps them there. Right. What about the idea of sort of reverse mentoring? Um, yeah. The that, young talent helping the older or the more seasoned employees sort of make the change to what yeah. the area is today. We talk a lot about that at my agency because, you know, gone are the days where an individual, you're just talking down to the younger person training them. They're coming to our agency with um, an efficiency in infographics or um, right down to graphic design or um, advertising copy and content and things like that that we're able to use. So we listen to them in terms of how they've done things in school to prepare them for this job and then redirect and start doing some of that within the agency. What is the most difficult or challenging level of employee to work with in terms of retaining talent after a certain longevity? Yeah, I would say once an individual hits that five-year mark, Mm -hmm. um, they start to look and say, either I'm going to stick with this agency and go down that path to become a VP, or I want to go corporate and get get some experience digging into one company in one industry. And that's that desire, Diana, that these that that people have at that point in their career to really develop an expertise and specialize, um, so that's why they leave to go to a startup or go to a technology company that is just in one one category. But is there any, that, is that something that an agency, you as an agency leader, can do something about, yeah. or is that just something inherent in the person that wants to try something new? Um, we can do something about it because what we do in terms to, to address that, I talked earlier about those specialized roles. So if you have a desire to do a certain type of activity, at that point in your career, you've earned the stripes for us to listen to and look at what you've done the previous five years and develop a specialized role for you where you can do exclusively social or um, interactive marketing or integrated marketing, excuse me, um, activities on a program. And then on the flip side, if you desire security, we'll find just security accounts for you to work on. Now, we can't give you at a place like Pan just one account to work on. But we can group them so that if your interest is technology and then within technology it's security, as I said, then we'll find we'll find accounts and group them for you at that role. And we, um, the term modern workforce is thrown around a bit. Yeah. Um, is How would you define what the modern workforce is? Uh, I think the modern workforce today is one where... Um, they come in with some expectations, and employers need to listen to them. That doesn't mean you do what every, you know, everything that they're asking. But in today's world, they're looking for more than just a nine-to-five job or a place to work where um, you know, they, they aren't valued. They want to feel that value. They want to feel like they're influencing the culture, the community in that company. So I think the modern workforce today is one that looks holistically that the, the company or the agency, in my case, that they join, they're going to get out of it more than just professional satisfaction. It's going to check a box for them in terms of um, personal gratification and professional challenges, things like that. Now, I know you sit on the board of the PR Council, correct? Yes. Um, so what do you hear, um, what, what is your takeaway on an industry-wide level? I mean, are there... 
in terms of recruiting talent, in terms of keeping yeah. talent, um, yeah. making uh, the industry appealing for young people? Right. So a couple of things there. We just, I just was at a board meeting uh, last Thursday for the PR Council, and without exception, people talked about the talent as the number one issue that we're facing. So I think that every agency CEO and head of HR is concerned about that. And in what way, though? In, in not in, having in, enough talent yeah, or oh, being able finding, to... Finding finding mm-hmm. the right talent. Yeah, not enough talent. And you know, you're in this space. Mm-hmm. You you write about this often, that the we're stealing from one another and we've got to find talent that we can bring into this industry. And why I'm here today, because I'm both an adjunct and the CEO of an agency, I believe we need to continue to feed more people into the PR and I am world by educating them and developing a passion for them at that level. At that level being... Um, at the college level. At the college level. Yeah. Um, that plays into the question, too, about finding a more diverse workforce. Yeah. Um, I wish we could do something at the college level to attract um, men, people of color, um, to the industry. And, you know, the people at, at the Newhouse School, we, we, all, we talk about this often, and we work hard to find and, and engage people at a various, um, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds to, to this industry. But it's a challenge, Diana. Is it because people, um, unless you have a knowledge of the industry growing up or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, don't really know what PR is? I think so. I think so. I think it's that you... At a place like Newhouse, we, you and I are both aware of college senior, high school seniors that that's where they want to go. Well, the, the type of people that we're trying to attract beyond the typical don't know PR. They don't know communications. So we have to do something to begin to educate them. It's almost like the industry needs to have its own advocacy campaign. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's part of what the PR Council is doing for agencies, right? They're trying to say that agencies are a great place for individuals right out of college all the way to people that are at the EVP level. Like, it's a, it's a good career. Right. Um, there's also the sort of trend or movement to hire people from outside traditional PR um, career tracks and bring them into agencies. You're mm-hmm. saying videographers and journalists yeah. and politicians. Yeah political people. Um, yeah, we try that. And, you know, some work, some don't. It's still a challenge because we live in a, you know, our assets are the people that go down in the elevate, elevator every night, right? So we work with utilization all the time. So we, we need people to, um, to charge their time based on their clients. It's a, it's a simple formula. So we want to bring people in, but we need to make sure there's enough work in those areas to keep them busy. Right. What is your feeling on um, public relations formal training? Obviously, you're a public relations professor, so I'm in no way belittling that. Yeah. Um, but there are different trains of thought that you can foster sort of critical thinking and creativity by studying the world at large or the tactics of public relations. Um, Are they mutually exclusive or? Well, if you remember the the question that you asked me about what do I look for in these students, and I said what turns me on most are those intellectually curious people. Um, And I even said they could have great skills, but what I really am turned on by is that they can defend and have a point of view and they are um, 
they are comfortable in that role. So I think what I'm saying is that we see more of that. Like we we look for more people like that, and that they make the best PR practitioners because they're able to dissect a story, something that a client is saying, and and find what that reporter, that analyst, that influencer might be looking for to grab onto. Right, because some of the, the success of PR is really just having an innate Abs- sense of, of what to do, right? Absolutely. And how to do it. Yeah, it's that sense of, you know, there's something here there's that I can latch on to. And, you know, that is not something taught in a university, right? No, you can't learn that. You, can, it's you can't a learn sense. that. Yeah. So, and I think that the best PR practitioners are those that, as I said, they're, they're curious. They ask a lot of questions because they're digging for something. Right. So here we are. You're, we're in April. We'll be nearing May. The kids will be graduating. Um, what's your sense as the semester winds up and you're probably onboarding some kids too? What's your sense of, of where we're standing in terms of the, the next generation of talent of their preparation to go into the, the workforce and the workforce's preparation yeah. to handle them? I think um, having taught for you know, so long at the Newhouse School, I think this year is there's no reason why these individuals wouldn't have a job and a desired job by the time they graduate. There's people, as I've said earlier, are looking for talent. It's the number one issue that keeps coming up time and time again at the PR Council. So um, I think that it's making sure that you're packaging up your work and communicating what differentiates you from others as you're as you're looking for um, for your for your first opportunity. It's, listen, it's the same thing for an individual at a midpoint in their career looking for a new job. I mean, there's definitely opportunity there. I hope that at places at a place like Pan, we're keeping people and retaining them. But if they're looking, it's because they there's something in themselves that they want to package up, package up what they've done, and they're looking for that next opportunity. And that's just as you've said, innate in some people, right? right. But I think the market today is phenomenal for the kids graduating from colleges and universities in terms of the PR industry. Great. Well, that must be very satisfying for you. It you is. in the classroom, right, on both ends to well, see be, what you're helping yeah. produce and who they're getting. Well, I remember, like, not too long ago, Diana, there were no jobs. Right. So, you know, for entry-level students, so entry-level um, practitioners. So, you know, now it's a different market. Good. Well, yeah. We could be sitting here talking to one of them in a year or two years or yeah. <laughs> six no, months from now. Who knows? You know, that's the other thing. That it, I think today's modern workforce, there's no prescribed... You've got to be in this role for six months before you get to that role. I mean, literally, you move people along based on their skill set and based on their success. We've had an individual recently that skipped over a level as they became a director, Um, but she was ready for it. So like things like that, employers need to be aware of that because it, you know, it makes a difference and it sends a great message to everyone else in the agency when you do something like that, right? It, like, that can be me. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing your insight and uh, yeah. the work you do with the, with the students as well as uh, running the company is not easy. No, it's not easy. Um, so I do it once a week in the spring semester, teach, but I, it keeps me informed as to what students, uh, how they're evolving, what they're looking for, and I can bring that back to my HR team and my leadership team, and it's been it, it's beneficial. Great. And you can bring it back here to us as the conversation continues. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, thank Thanks. you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Diana. Thanks.
Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber. I am Diana Marzalek. I'm a senior reporter with the Homes Report, and I am here with two guests from Inkhouse, public relations firm based in Boston. I have Beth Monahan, who is the CEO and co-founder. Welcome. Thank you so much. And I have Tara Monroe, who is Inkhouse's first storyteller in residence. I'm curious what that is. Can you <laughs> tell us about that? I'd love to. So thank you for having me. Um, so the Storyteller in Residence is um, actually Beth's brainchild. <laughs> um, I had met Beth, um, what I thought was going to be a quick coffee <laughs> chat, um, and ended up being an interview. Um, which I mostly great. was like, could you just stay? <laughs> which is always good. You hit it off. <laughs> which was great. And so she, she called me, and she said, I have this idea. Um, she said, I want you to come to Inkhouse and focus on a special project, and I'm calling it the Storyteller in Residence, and I want you to think about how we can approach stories differently. Um, and she said, because I think I would like to have somebody who doesn't necessarily have a PR background, because I was a curator before this. Um, you were a curator how? What what kind of curator? You bring a different, you bring a, his, a, a historical so background, I was a his, right? I was not an art curator. I was a historical curator. So, um, so I worked for the Ted Kennedy Institute, and um, basically that meant that I was in charge of all of his stuff. Wow. From the 46 years he was in the Senate. That's amazing. Um, and what was fun about being a curator at that institute is it was a fresh um, cultural institution, just open. Um, so I got to think through some of the um, exhibits that they were going to do in the institute. Interesting. So, yeah. And so, so that skill, Beth, what, what did that appeal to you in terms of bringing Tara on? So... Um, Every year that I have had in-house, I feel like public relations changes in some foundational way. And we need external viewpoints to help us know where it's going. And I, what I loved about Tara's background is that the way she thinks about an exhibit is exactly the way we have to think about a story. In what way? What do you mean by that? She, she, she took me through this whole <laughs> process that she created. Called the so what. So what? Okay. <laughs> Get to the so what. And the so what is the essence of a good pitch. Oh, like why do we care? Mm -hmm. Why do we care? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, the, her methodology for getting there um, helped us step outside of our PR brains and step into a new way to get to the same kind of thing we're trying to get to, but in a, in a, in a different way that added a, la a layer of context. Was, was the storytelling technique that PR is using stale, or were you just looking to add on to it, embellish it? Uh, well, I don't know if it's stale. I think this is still happening right now. We're living in this age where there's so many more news stories. Um, I have a chart of Google news um, news stories per day from like 1979 through today. I can it, only imagine the the surge in it gradually numbers. goes up, but in 2015 it skyrockets, mm -hmm. and that's when artificial intelligence started um, writing sports news mm -hmm. and financial news stories. At the same time, Steven Pinker has this lovely graphic of the tone of the news from 1940 to today, and it goes steadily down. Okay. So we have people checking out of the news. Um, Investigative journalism is is back um, after the Trump administration, yeah. um, and we need a better way to reach people. And I, you know what I said to Tara is I feel like we have um, fear works when it makes it makes people click on things. Right? right. So we have so so we're starting with the basis that we have more news, 
but it's negative news. It's negative news. Okay. And there's a Pew um, research study that shows that the negativity and the polarization of the headlines are causing people to check out. We've seen Facebook use, usage go down. Um, I don't know what it's at today, but it, when I last checked, it was down 30%. Um, and so we're inundated and we're checking out. And that's not what public relations was meant to do. It's meant to bring people together. And we're meant to create mutually beneficial relationships between an entity and its audiences. And I felt like the tactics that we had to employ to get people to click or to break through to the news cycles, um, we're not doing that anymore. Okay, so your your premise or, or what you noticed is that PR was playing into mm. that trend that you're seeing. Yeah, we had to, right? We had to. And um, in what way? Though? Were they were promoting fear? I mean, using these fear tactics to get people what they want? Or yeah, how I did mean, you, if say- you think about like the the um, it's an emotional thing. It is. And right. so people are wired to scan for threats. So it works like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, mm-hmm. starts at the like with, with your foundational needs for food and safety. You know, once those are met, you can move up and self-actualization is at the top. Okay. And so fear is the most foundational thing that we have. And when you see um, like the, the local TV headlines, right, like how to get out alive. Um, <laughs> A little thing like that. You know, and then the BuzzFeed's headlines started... Um, playing on that a little bit. And instead of being fear-based, they were like, a man walked into a gas station and then this happened, Mm. you know? And so that was just dumbing down the news and degrading the content. And so that also contributed to people checking out. And so I said, look, we're supposed to be building thoughtful conversations to create communities around us. And so there must be a better way. And so I said to Tara, like, why don't we go find out? (laughs) (laughs) So, Tara, you came with skills. Um, um, Different (laughs) methodology. But what what was the process of seeking out these better ways? So we, Beth and I met um, with with a team, and I I said, I know museums. So, Mm -hmm. and I know art. So that's where I'm going to start. And she said, great. <laughs> um, so that's what we did. So I basically just researched and I and I read and I also um, asked in for a few favors from former colleagues. And I said, would you be willing to be part of this project? We had met, um, as Beth was saying, before I'd even started, I was like, I'm going to approach this like I wouldn't exhibit. Hope that's okay. Um, <laughs> that's great. And I don't think we've named the, the project yet. Project Curiosity, right? Yes. Okay. Project Curiosity. Which was Beth, Beth said it on a whim, and I said, that's the name we're going to stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so basically, we just had a, a brainstorming session. And what I would do in an exhibit is there's always a point where someone asks a question, any question, and it, it sparks something that leads to your concept. That's somebody when you're during creating, a brain, yeah, during, during a brainstorm. brainstorm. Okay. Um, and Beth said... Um, how do we make connections and why, how do we be open to other people's point of view? So I went home and I thought about it and I said, well, then that's our so what. Our so what is how do we get our clients to make better connections with their audiences? And then from there, you move on to your content. And and the changing, so we do a lot of innovation PR. We work, um, we don't, we're working with um, 
companies who are trying to change some fundamental piece of their market um, and thought leaders at higher education institutions who have are just trying to reinvent preschool. They're trying to reinvent the internet. Okay. They're trying to do really big things in the world. And that means that we have to convince a lot of people to come along with us. Right. Um, and so the best way to convince people to come along with you is to scare them half to death. But <laughs> that doesn't make them very loyal followers, and it makes them kind of want to stage a coup once they find a weak spot. So <laughs> and that's what you don't want to do. No. Right? That's, what that's we the don't antithesis want. of Project Curiosity. We want okay. to create you know, people who, who choose to mm-hmm. follow us. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and so um, that was really what we were looking for, new ways to do that. And so was Project Curiosity like a thing that has come in gone or is it an ongoing process or it's a really good question (laughs) Um, we're kind of talking about this a little bit i think the project part of it the gathering of the content is gone um but i think what what beth will probably speak to in her takeaways is that how do we apply what we learn during that project so that it's ongoing right and the project before we get away from the project what did the project entail what did you actually do to come up with the concept that Sure. Resulted from the project, so it was a lot of research. Um, as as a history person, <laughs> into storytelling or into public relations, it or? was a lot of research into getting back to our so what as to how do people make better connections and in, and in focusing on the cultural space. How do um, museums or people who work in in cultural institutions make connections with their audiences? And I had said to Beth, you know, museums had kind of gone through the ringer. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a bit after the um, economy crashed. Um, and it was a moment of like, oh, wait a minute, the old way that we used to do things don't work anymore. Right. Um, and museums were closing, literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was like, so what do we do to stay alive? Um, so I, I just researched like I, what I thought museums who had done it right and actually making meaningful connections with new audiences and existing audiences. Um, and then outside of that, we had interviewed um, a woman who owns an independent bookshop um, called Brookline Booksmith. Um, we interviewed two radio DJs, um, and that was a, a spur of the moment. There were radio DJs that I listened to every morning, mm-hmm. and um, one morning, one of them was talking about um, the loss of their son, mm-hmm. and it kind of hit me. Um, and it, it was a moment of like, wow, what a brave thing to do on the air to get that open about something very personal that happened. So I just reached out and I said, would you be willing to be part of this project? Fully expecting that they'd be like, what? No. Um, but everybody we had talked to was really excited because I think there was generally, I think Beth was feeling what a lot of people were feeling was this idea of like, this is just not working anymore in terms of how we're getting our information and how we're connecting with people. Um, so there's got to be something new and different. Right. So the so what is making meaningful connections? Or how do you get people to um, become open to a different point of view? Okay. So that is, is that the so what? Or I mean, it is the so what. But is, is that the end goal? Yeah, it is. But each campaign, I imagine, or each project would have its own so what. I mean, don't you have to prove... You still have to explain to them why they should you do. care. You do. And what I what I liked about going to museums is not only that museums had to come up with new ways to engage with their audiences, but that art mm-hmm. in and of itself is a medium through which people are not usually intimidated, mm-hmm. right? They can They can absorb it on their own and help them open up to a different point of view by looking at it. Right. They have to be open to it, though. They do. And art, though, has a way of making us open to it, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't come to us with a predetermined point of view. Right. Um, the same with a bookstore. 
right? It's filled with all sorts of ideas, and you can go find new ways to look at things. Yep. Um, and so Tara also looked into the neuroscience of, you know, how do we, how do our brains actually work? <laughs> do, we... do tell us. <laughs> so I, so we, so after doing a little research, I started toying with this idea called gray spaces. Um, which are the space, the spaces outside of black and white thinking, where you kind of can push yourself to exploring something that you necessarily wouldn't before, but without being scared to death and uncomfortable and shut down. Um, and then I, I was just thinking, and I was like, that kind of reminds me of gray matter. No background in neuroscience whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, history of neuroscience. <laughs> this is very cool. So I, I was just like, huh. And I had heard that uh, the PB, PBD Essex Museum had recently hired a neuroscientist to help um, figure out, to study the brain while people are looking at exhibits to better inform them how to make their exhibits more engaging which I thought was brilliant. So I, so it kind of, it was like kind of serendipity. So it, <laughs> so I, I reached out to that neuroscientist. I did the study um, and I just talked to her about the way that she approached things. And then I, during my research, I found out that a lot of people were looking at neuroscience as a way to figure out audience engagement and to like go down literally to the fundamentals of the brain and how we interact with each other and what that does to our brains. Like right now, our brains are connecting just by talking to each other. We don't even realize it. But we're like, but we're in sync. <laughs> we are in sync here today. Um, so you've done the research. You've studied these various facets. What did you bring back, and then what does that that mean in terms of action? Yeah. So Tara did a, a bunch of. Um, she did a series on our blog mm-hmm. where we found different things. So one was about the science of storytelling and the neuroscience of it. One was. How do creative cultural thinkers help us open up to new points of view? She had a man who did spoken word um, performances come into our office so we could experience it. It was like interpretive something or other. What's a spoken word performance? uh, A spoken word artist, he just came in and did his poetry for us. Oh, (laughs) okay. That I get. Beautiful. And then we did another one on um, pathways for empathy. Uh, So Tara discovered the Empathy Museum. Yeah. Where is that? That's in London, and I really want them to come to the states. They've never been. <laughs> it's a, is it traveling? Right. It's a traveling. Um, it's a it's a, a woman who run. I talked to the woman who runs the museum. Um, basically, they do um, kind of like high street pop up shops, but exhibits to really? promote empathy. So one of the one of the things that we um, featured on the blog was um, a, a mile in my shoes, where they do this pop up shop of a of a shoebox. And what they've done is they've collected the stories of the people in that area. So you go in and you buy a pair of shoes, or mm-hmm. you actually are renting them, right. and you put on headphones and you listen to that person's story while you walk, literally walk in their shoes for a mile. Uh, so you're really in there. Because hmm. I, I don't know if you can, I guess you can experience empathy. I don't know if you can teach empathy, right? Isn't that sort of a psychopathy? <laughs> empathy <laughs> like something? Is, is everything. You know, yep. when we, um, so I lead. Most people call them messaging workshops, but mm-hmm. I lead storytelling workshops. And the thing that is the hardest, I think, is the, is the empathy piece because you get into a room and you know it's natural for you. You're selling something, right? You're selling a service, a product, an idea, mm-hmm. and you're just going to go down the list of why everyone should buy it, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it's the best at these five things. And if you pause and you ask yourself, what motivates my target audiences emotionally? You're going to get a really different answer. 
And so it becomes a question of like even a toothbrush, by the way, right? So why do you, the reason that you purchase anything, everyone will tell you, I did it because it was the cheapest, it was the best. It's really not why. You buy things because you get something from that emotionally. And you may not even be aware of it. Even your toothbrush. Even your toothbrush. Um, I have a Quip toothbrush. I do too. Um, right? And so don't you feel really proud and excited because that's beautiful and now you're pretty hip and you have a cool toothbrush that doesn't hurt your gums as much. And they send <laughs> and they send you the refill every three and months. And you feel really smart because you don't have to go to the store and get it. Exactly. It's so efficient. So that's the emotional payoff, right? Right. And so there's two, when we talk about emotional drivers, you are driven by fear um, and pride. And so... It's easy to manipulate the fear piece because it's the most compelling emotion that we have. Um, but what we want to get to is like if, if your audience is afraid of something, how can we be the bearers of hope so that they, they can move from fear to pride? And if you start making a list, you'd be surprised at how many emotional drivers you can come up with that are related to what you're offering to them. And so this is not a manipulation game. This is a game of really understanding like, well, if these people aren't if the target audience that you thought was your target audience doesn't care about what you're doing, like we should move on, right? Because right. we're trying to cutting bait. Yeah, we're trying to bring people who are meant to be together together. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not authentic. What's the point? Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but adding the emotional piece or the empathy to these conversations or the messaging has that been missing, or it's that it's been stressing fear instead of the pride. I think empathy is very missing. We, um, When we went through this phase of um, rapid-fire content, um, there was no need to have empathy because you were just like, I just got to crank out content every day with my strong point of view so that people will read it. And so what I would say to clients is like, if you want to get quoted in a New York Times piece, you better have a really provocative point of view that's different from everybody else's. Otherwise, you got no chance. And that parlayed itself into medium pieces, into LinkedIn pieces, into op-eds. And there is a need for tension. That's what gets people interested. But not at the cost of empathy and understanding like what people are doing. I think we, we've gotten into this um, habit of telling people what they should think and how they should feel instead of having real conversations with them about why they feel that way and what might be useful for them. <laughs> for them to think for themselves. So, Right. We need to restore agency. <laughs> right. So how have your practices – I mean, I, I – I know this is still new and fresh, but have your actual practices changed? Have you have you retrained people? Have storytelling different? Well, we came up with ten takeaways. Oh, let's hear them. That we um, distributed before the year started, um, and we said this isn't predictions. These aren't predictions. These are how we think we should do our jobs in 2019. So one of them is to seek common ground through common goals. So, you know, if you're having a difficult conversation with somebody or trying to sell them something, if you if you start with what do we both care about, the odds of you coming out in the same place are so much higher. Right. Right. Um, so that's number one. So what are your common goals? The second one is to listen first and talk second. Which gets but this is to consumers or to this internally or just in your life? to consumers, to business-to-business buyers, to social media audiences. Uh, okay. And also in personal conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Can't hurt. Um, my daughter is in, um, well, she was in first grade when we were doing this, and um, her teacher sent home a um, 
full body listening graphic, which <laughs> which I really felt like I should distribute worldwide. But it, you know, it's like eye a contact. viral sensation. No, it's eye contact. <laughs> Turn your body toward really? them. In first grade. The phone down. Oh, the phone down. That's the hard part. <laughs> there wasn't a phone in this one because they didn't have. <laughs> I have a fifteen-year-old, so there's no putting the phone down. But no, but it was. It's. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, right. Don't have your screen up in front of your computer screen. Um, the third one is to make it about um, them, not you. Yes. Right? Um, and that is one one in marketing, but it's easy to forget that when you're supposed to be. An influencer. So an influencer is important and has to tell everybody why they're important. And so we forget that people don't really care about that. They want to know how you think. Right. Um, the fourth is to offer hope instead of wielding fear. That's the big one. That's the big one. Um, and then I love number five because it is it is so possible today um, in social media where everything has to be visual or video for people to connect with it. So um, the cool thing about art and music and other real world experiences is that they are not confrontational. And so what about using your creative team to help communicate a complex or a controversial idea in a new way that is not as um, you know, confrontational as, as words? So something visual. Something visual, yeah. And we do that all, that, that's one of the tenets that we say to clients. We integrate design into every PR campaign. Could visual be standalone too? Sure. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it could be a real world exhibit, right? Like on the street. Right, you could have yeah. a pop-up museum. Yeah. Exactly. About quips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the sixth one is to come together in crisis. Okay. Um, we do a lot of crisis communications at Inkhouse, and the the default is always to defend yourself and to identify who's to blame. Right. <laughs> protection. Self-protection. Right. And um, the best crises that we have seen are when people decide, you know what, we're all human, and it's a complex world, and we're actually going to come together to see how we can solve this together. And it's a lot more palatable um, to the media and to your audiences if you can do that, you know. Um, convening differing points of view comes right off of that. So um, we, especially right now with the polarizing headlines, yes. you know, our tendency is to have panel discussions where everybody agrees with us. <laughs> we like to hear ourselves. It's so fascinating. Right. Um, but what if you brought the um, some people who had the complete opposite point of view, and assuming that they would be, we'd all be respectful to one another. You know, you have to choose your panelists well. But now you've got a really interesting conversation that opens up people in ways that never were possible. Mm -hmm. Was that number 10? No. Um, no, I have three more. Oh, okay, good. I didn't want take... to cut you off. <laughs> no. um, when we talked about it a little bit, but person-to-person -person interactions are back. You know, we've, we spent a few years forgetting that um, people were people and that, you know, robots might be able to just replace us and talk to us. But it turns out that we connect better with people when we meet them. <laughs> so. <laughs> that seems. so are you talking about actually putting campaigns, putting messages like in putting humans on the street or yeah. I mean we actually did a, we did a project for the um, mayor of Boston um, where he was imagining what the city would look like in 2030 mm -hmm. and we took a booth out um, in lots of different parts of the city and we had people on the street imagine what Boston would look like and the mayor it was really important for him to kind of crowdsource what the city would be and so he had all sorts of other mechanisms like texts that people could send in and you know so we could all work together to think about what should Boston be right the participatory yeah. interesting yeah um the ninth one is to join your community don't take it over 
Mm-hmm. So you can't tell people how to think, basically. Yeah, you can't. And if you want people to listen to you, you have to be part of their community, right? You right. can't just come in and be like the big one on town and say, I'm, I'm here and now we're going to do it my way. Right. It never works. Um, and then the 10th one is is really, we talked about the, restoring people's agency, but teaching and not preaching, you know, allowing others to hold the opposite point of view, even if you disagree with it. That's a hard one right now. It's, it, and that goes back into the sh- people shutting down the news. People don't want to hear it and the fear and the negativity, right? But you see it on social media when there's a disagreement on a company's website or on their social media and people get into this, I have to be right. And so that's how that's how all these Twitter fights happen, right? Because mm-hmm. no one's going to back down and no one's going to acknowledge that maybe <laughs> the other point of view is a valid one that I just don't hold, right? Right. So... Is something like that obtainable? Because some of that's human nature. It is. I think that it is all in the, um, in the nuances of how you go about communicating, right? So you can decide to go into a, you know, a point by point rebuttal, or you can decide to, as Susan Ellsbury, who is one of our SVPs, says, to take the high road because it's always less crowded. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. But you You're can alone out there. You can decide to be kind. You can decide to come to this conversation with compassion because it's easy to forget that there's another human on the other side of the keyboard. And if you do that and and your words show that, I think we have found really um, valuable ways of resolving conflict, even online, if you choose the right words. So a lot of what you're describing to me sounds just almost like lessons for daily life. And yet <laughs> you're it's the same. But daily life is communicating, right? Yes. We're trying to make peace with people and well, uh, right. go about our daily living. And so it's the same so thing using these tenants in your You're storytelling. Right. Isn't that what PR is, though? We're communicating, right? Right. So That's what we're supposed to be We doing. come full circle. Yeah. No, it's what <laughs> no. we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> right. So um, have you started implementing these yet? We have. We have spent um, a good long time really being thoughtful with our teams about how do we do this and how do we make recommendations um, to our clients in a way that brings people together. And our, our clients have loved it. They have. I think that it's been a breath of fresh air. Um, a lot of them, a lot of clients are scared to go to the media because they think that they have to have these really controversial points of view that they don't necessarily hold but have to say to get attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can find a better way, um, they feel like it's more authentic. Is it working? Yeah, we get tons of press coverage. Do you? Good. (laughs) (laughs) That's fabulous. Now, when you and I met about a month ago, a month and a half ago in Boston, um, one of the conversations we had was your thought that this is something for the bigger PR industry, that the fear factor has got to go. Leveraging fear has got to go. Where do we take that idea? Well, I mean, I guess I would say that it is inherent in the media's business model, right? Like if you get incentivized for clicks then you're going to come up with scary headlines because that gets the most clicks, right, if you're a reporter, if you're an editor. And therefore, PR has to kind of do the same thing. And I don't think that our humanity has been well served by that approach. We've seen, as we've just talked about. Um, And so I think that public relations has a responsibility to do a part in making the world a better place um, because we need it. We do. Do you think the industry is ready to adopt that? (laughs) Uh, I don't know, but we are. Absolutely. And after they listen to this podcast, maybe everybody's going to be on board. <laughs> They're going to have their own problem. While they're at it, they should pay women the same as they pay men. Oh. Yes. Now, um, <laughs> that is a big, 
I think that is, uh, I'm glad you got the plug in for that because I know that that is a, a big um, issue for you and you're a big booster of that. So I am. we appreciate your work that you do. I'm on, on message. <laughs> you are on message and we can all come together around that idea. <laughs> Three of us women sitting here. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. We all agree. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I didn't bring a man into that one. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a good place for us to, to wind up. Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate what the work that you're both doing. And Tara, welcome to the, Thank the you. business. Thank you. <laughs> I hope so, you're going to stick around. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll uh, keep up to date on what you're doing and how it's going and the next Project Curiosity, too. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.